When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. Joining me for our episode today is Pastor Mary. I first met Mary at a retreat for the Fellowship of Recovering Lutheran Clergy many years ago. She's been an active member ever since, and she's here today and has agreed to share her story of addiction and grace. So we're here with Pastor Mary, and she is, uh, Mary, where are you? Where do you live? I'm, I'm in Tacoma, Washington. Tacoma, Washington. So we're sharing our stories of addiction and grace, and Mary has been, Pastor Mary has been gracious enough to share a little bit of her story. Uh, tell us, Mary, if you would, um, what it was like for you. Uh, well, the really quick thumbnail sketch is, uh, I grew up in a home with an alcoholic father who functioned really well, but drank a lot. And uh, he was an angry man and alcohol actually sometimes calmed him down depending on how much he'd had. He wasn't abusive. I, I mean, you know, I knew I was loved, all of that. But so I'm looking back and imposing diagnoses backwards. He never missed work because of his drinking, but he, he drank a lot. And he, um, I grew up. I grew up in the 60s and it was not uncommon to have those cocktail parties and you know everybody had a highball and a cigarette and and nobody thought it was a, a bad thing to allow a small child to have a sip of your drink. Well, my mother will tell the story and it's been 60 years um, and she'll still be angry about it. Uh, she rarely drinks and doesn't drink much and she doesn't like it. So, but it was one of those family occasions, a birthday or Christmas or something, you know, I kind of have this vision. Um, I don't remember being three, but I remember how we used to gather. Um, all my aunts and uncles, my mom and dad, everybody with a drink in their hand and half of them smoking. And uh, it wasn't beer. It was, you know, old fashions, whiskey sours, and none of them poured lightly. And, and so apparently um, nobody was really paying attention when my, me as a three-year-old's going around getting a sip out of every single a grown-up's highball. A three-year-old drunk child is not fun. I don't remember it. My mom was pissed and she'll still be angry when she tells that story. Nobody was paying attention to what the other grown-ups in the room were doing, but nobody, I mean, all my life I grew up with, Daddy, can I have a sip of your drink? And I've always liked whiskey. Never, I didn't care for beer. And wine um, was an acquired taste and ended up being my beverage of choice most of the time. My parents also had what would make sense in a non-alcoholic home. 
but not in a family of alcoholics. Uh, when I when I did my um, you know family history for seminary psychologist way back when we were supposed to make this family tree and where the dysfunctions were and. On one side of the family, I put all the drug addicts and alcoholics that I knew about in red, and the other side, I put them in green, and it looked like a Christmas tree lit up. <laughs> you know, my grandma was a drug addict, and you know, prescription drugs, and every male relative I had was um, a functioning alcoholic. I mean, it's just so. Anyway, I was kind of screwed genetically, and I didn't have any better role models except my mom, who barely drank at all, and you know, so there was no middle of the road thing to watch. So my parents' idea in the 70s, I was in high school, was that I wouldn't go to the parties where drinking was the point of the party because it was a novelty if I were allowed to have, like children in Europe sometimes, you know, a little bit of wine with dinner, a little bit of beer with dinner. So I could, you know, it's it wouldn't be this forbidden fruit and I wouldn't be tempted to go hang out with the wrong kids and do the forbidden fruit. And they kind of made a point. That was, that, was their, that was their strategy to help you not be obsessed about going to parties where there's drinking, if they expose you to drinking. Yeah. Makes sense in a normal household, but you know, right. yeah. everybody in my family was affected by alcoholism. So, and occasionally I'd even for a treat on a weekend, and this is when I'm 15, 16, if, uh, if my folks knew I was staying home and not driving, I'd even get a little highball, you know, I, uh, bourbon and seven or something. Well, it was a good idea, but it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, in the long run, their strategy failed. I didn't go to the parties. I didn't hang out with those people. They also did uh, drugs that I never did. And they, uh, they smoked and I didn't like smoking and, and I was not the most popular kid in class anyway. So, you know, it would, it probably wouldn't have been an issue, but anyway, um, then I married, uh, an alcoholic who drank alcoholically, uh, from his very first drink at a young age. And that's his story to tell. He got sober. I got into Al-Anon uh, and I only got into Al-Anon because he was making me crazy. I was not nice. Uh, and um, it wasn't around my drinking yet. Um, I. So how old are you now? When did you get, how old when you got married? And then. Um, 20. And he was 19. Yeah. And we were both young, probably too young, but we were stubborn. So we're still married and it's been 40, <laughs> two and a half years. But a lot of our problems weren't around my drinking, but my reaction to his drinking. And mm. so uh, I was introduced to the 12 steps through Al-Anon, actually, because he tried to stop drinking, but didn't have a program at first because we didn't know about it. You know, we we didn't live around sober people and, you know, we had church and work and at church, nobody talks about it. And at work, um uh, everybody talked about it. So, <laughs> and I was home with three kids under the age of four and I had every reason to, I didn't drink much when I was, I didn't drink when I was the only adult present because I knew they needed a sober parent. But once they went to sleep um, at some point, I started drinking again, but I, I had been going to Al-Anon for quite a while. My husband has a wonderful recovery. He's got nine years on me. At some point, while well, I, I still in 
you know, the fellowship for friends and family of, I was doing my, I was mushing up an 11th step prayer and a, and a third step prayer because my youngest was in first grade. Right. And, uh, and I finally had no kids at home all day. I had that six hour block of time that was just for me. And I'm an introvert. So I already was less crazy. And I started um, saying, uh, please show me your will for my life. Give me the power to carry that out. And I think what I was meaning was, should I be a Girl Scout leader or help in the classroom this year? You know, uh, should I buy another goat or a chicken or should I plant more squash? I mean, you know, <laughs> instead I started having these visions of me as a pastor. And my first response to God was, and this is part of my sobriety story and part of my call story. They're all mixed up. Part of my, uh, my first response to God was, this is what I get for listening. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, I, you know, in the, in the 60s and early 70s, before the Vietnam War stopped, uh, there was this chant, hell no, we won't go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was pretty much my first response to God. And then my second response to God was, okay, I will obey, but I don't like it. I don't want it. Cause I didn't want to end up in the belly of a big fish. You know, yeah. I'd read about that prophet who's, you know, hell no, I won't go. And he runs away and there's the, it's like, I don't have the energy for that. Meanwhile, you're still drinking, going to Al-Anon and your husband's in recovery. Yes. And I have three children within the age span of four years. Okay. So, uh, including a, a preteen whose hormones are making her absolutely nuts up. We were a one-income family, so money was always a stress. And so I told God, okay, I'll do it. I'll obey, but I'm telling you, I don't like it. I don't want to do that. I think it's a sucky idea. And if there's just one single door closed, I'm not going. I'm not going. I had a two-year college degree. I knew what I knew what was involved in an MDiv. And I had a two-year AA degree in French, which I don't consider a great educational background for where it felt like, you know, uh, God's Holy Spirit was harassing me to go. So I said, if there's one door closed, I'm not even knocking on it because, you know, I want to milk goats and raise children and chickens. So what was your, can I ask, what, what was your church upbringing up to this point? What was your church exposed oh. Well, I'm an army brat. My dad was raised by a practicing uh, agnostic, also a drug addict. And so he never went in for it much. He thought they were always asking for his money. He's kind of like Mark Twain. And my mother was raised by a lapsed Catholic who never went to church after her divorce because she thought she was going to hell. And her father's family, her father abandoned the family, but my his family helped raise her and her siblings, and they were kind of charismatic Church of God, white, the white version, uh, you know, did adult baptisms and, and all of that. So she was raised in that kind of atmosphere. She was a believer her whole life. Neither of her siblings are, but she wouldn't get baptized because she didn't want to get dunked because she couldn't swim. <laughs> And she didn't trust the pastor to not drown her. Um, and she knew that if she, she, she like believed what they taught and not how they behaved. She said they were racist and they were all, they, they talked about love and it was in the Bible, but they didn't behave that way. So she, 
So she went to whatever church or Sunday school was on base. And so did we, wherever my dad was stationed. And then I married a Lutheran. I dated a Catholic, a Mormon. A, you know, I went to the Presbyterian church for a while. Um, I, I, I went wherever my boyfriend went. And then I married the Lutheran. So here I am. Well, that's interesting. Your sense of call was so strong. I was wondering where that was coming from. I mean, you know, I remember wanting to be a nun when I was a kid because it's mm -hmm. the only way I knew to be have a an organized. I had Catholic friends. I don't know if that was really a part of my call or if every little girl thinks, you know, Sister Bertrill was cute. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that's why I'm not. Yeah. Do you remember Get Smart? Oh, yeah. Exactly. Okay, so you remember the opening where he's, you know, he goes down yeah. the elevator and as he's going in, all these doors are opening. Yes. Right, right, yeah. That's what happened to me. Yeah, and there was not a single door that stayed closed. I got into an impacted undergraduate program when I signed up for college. Nobody was getting in. I cluelessly signed up for the classes and got in. When I was concerned about the math requirements because I didn't, you know, I went back to school 15 years after I stopped going to school and the math requirements had changed and become more rigorous. There was a counselor who taught me how to apply based on when I had started school and not when I planned to finish school. So I didn't have to take any more math. Actually, I had to take something in the math department. And what I took was a class called History of Economic Thought. The only numbers I saw were the footnotes at the bottom of my single term paper. And we spent most of the class time watching the Clarence Thomas confirmation trials. You're back in school because you're preparing to go to seminary. That's the whole point of being right. There. I had to finish college so I could go to seminary. Had you talked to anyone about that this is what you're doing or are you just doing this on your own? Oh, no, no, because I really wanted an excuse not to go. Remember, I said whatever. So first I thought, well, I got married in a Missouri Synod Church. And believe it or not, I promised to love, honor, and obey. So I thought, I'll try that obey part. And so on our way back from a fraternal, a Lutheran fraternal benefits organization meeting, I uh, told my husband, because I was still having visions while I was there. There's all these clergy men. I'm thinking I'm supposed to be dressed like that. This is supposed to be me. I mean, you know, I, it was, it wouldn't go away. And so I told him on the way home, it was a four or five hour trip. And I said, you know, I had the weirdest idea. You're never going to believe it. But I'm feeling like God is calling me into ordained ministry. And I thought he would say, well, you've got to be kidding. He was raised in the Missouri Synod Church. We weren't going to one anymore. Anybody listening who doesn't know, Missouri Synod does not ordain women. And this is more than 25 years ago, because maybe 29 years ago. So anyway, so I said, I had this crazy idea. And my hope was he would go, you, we've got three little kids at home. You know, college costs money. You, you, must, you must be smoking something. And instead he said, I can sell this Lutheran fraternal benefit anywhere you can get a job as a Lutheran pastor. Wait, that was the wrong answer. <laughs> you wanted the door to shut, didn't you? I did. I thought he would be the first door to shut. And then we started talking about stuff. So I said, I've got two, I've got an associate's degree in French. This is not useful. I have to go back to college. It's going to take me 10 years to finish college and seminary, it was too many years and too much money. And uh, I mean, and this was in, a, it was in November. 
there had been a branch meeting uh, that we had attended. And I said, you know, shoot, I won't even get to start till next September. And then there's another year. And, you know, I'm just going to be really old by the time I even start. What's the point? And he said, no, the next semester starts in January. It's like pushing me out the door. Is he worried about your drinking at this point? I mean, he, if he's going to meetings, he knows he yeah, should. No, he wasn't probably because I was not yet drinking to excess. I didn't, I didn't, my drinking pattern wasn't the same as his. I wasn't drinking to excess really then because I was still going to meetings. And this is, this is kind of the, the thing for me. Once I started back to college, you know, and I had talked to a, a counselor who helped me figure out my game plan for a bachelor's degree. I had also talked to my pastor. I had um, talked to the president at the seminary because I lived not too far from the seminary. So I, you know, by the time I actually had enrolled back in school, I had done uh, a lot of the footwork. Like I said, those doors just kept opening too. My parents paid for all my books because they were so happy I was going back to college. That, you know, my husband had a job. The way it worked is my kids were in school and I was in school when they were in school. And then we were all doing homework together. And my husband was doing continuing education for his field of work. But when I went back to school is when something had to give time-wise and I stopped going to meetings. Stop going to any meetings. My husband was still going to meetings. I think one of my saving graces, and I was still seeing a counselor off and on because I had gone to a counselor because I had anger issues and I didn't want to hurt my children. And so my saving graces, I think, were a very patient husband who was in recovery, thank goodness, and um, my counselor. And I met a woman who was a second career student like I was at the college, she's a teacher and she had been sober for a few years. And she recognized my easy does it bumper sticker that I put on there from Al-Anon. And, and so we got in a conversation, we just clicked and it's been, you know, 30 years. We, uh, she's still sober, but I, I stopped going to meetings and I was like stressed to the max. And then we moved right early in my seminary time we moved and so when you go through alban institutes stress things for, clerg for mm -hmm. clergy i maxed out i had all the things i had teenagers in the house multiple so i just times that by three we had had a move everybody had started a new school including me yeah. moving a house. i mean it was all the things mm -hmm. except for death of a parent or divorce and, uh, and then on the next page, you look at all the coping mechanisms that they note. And I was doing all the wrong ones and none of the right ones. I was overeating. I started drinking more. I was uh, not getting any exercise. Uh, my sleep patterns, I mean, you know, I was like the case book. <laughs> and so it was early, early in my seminary career that my husband came to me and said, I notice a lot of wine bottles in the mm. recycle bin and he said i'm not putting them there and i wasn't trying to hide it because i didn't have a drinking problem in my head but i planned every trip home i lived near davis california and drove to berkeley every single day and because traffic is two-hour trip sometimes and i planned every trip home do i get the bottle of wine tonight at safeway or do i get it at the liquor store because i didn't want anybody I already knew in my head. 
And then I've made teenagers go to bed at eight o'clock at night so that I could feel free to drink. There really was a time where if I had a plate of spaghetti and a glass of wine and I finished the spaghetti, I didn't finish the wine. They had to, you know, they didn't even out. I didn't finish the wine. By the time my husband noticed that all these wine bottles, I didn't care if I had spaghetti. You know, it was just, um, and then and by then I, and then, you know, um, I was still young. Uh, I discovered at some point along the way that um, vodka and orange juice were a wonderful cure for cramps. So it was a great excuse to drink in the morning. <laughs> Uh, so early in seminary, I thought, okay, he's noted, he's worried about my drinking. I'll, I'll pay attention to that. And like many alcoholics who overthink things. So I just stopped drinking. And I, and I just experimented with that. And then I would have a drink now and again. And why am I drinking? And how does this taste? And do I want, I mean, you know, I just spun it into mm-hmm. the ground. And then we went to Germany with his company for a sales conference. And that's, I think that's where I may have had my last drink was some uh, Riesling at a German restaurant. How do you go to Germany and not drink? I don't know. Um, I've been to a lot of other places where drinking is big since then and I don't drink. So um, I know it can be done, but um, it didn't feel right. I mean, that was that, that was the trip. It's like, okay. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com, and click on the Donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. So I had been going to meetings with my husband. That was my social thing. I went to open AA meetings with him for two or three years because I liked the people. We lived in a small town, 
some of their kids went to school with some of our kids. And since I was at school myself all day, I didn't have any other opportunity to socialize with people in my town. So, so I went to open AA meetings and I'd, I'd been going for a while. And whenever somebody would call on me, I would pass because I didn't have a drink. I, you know, I'm just a visitor. I stopped drinking when we came back from Germany, but I still didn't think of myself as an alcoholic. And then I had a couple of drinking dreams. And this, this is the, this is like, you know, uh, the aha moments. I'm very slow. <laughs> I'm slow to learn things. So I had a drinking dream. I had, I woke up with colds, like many people I woke up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night thinking, oh my God, what have I done? Uh, which was odd that I felt guilty about it because I hadn't told anybody I was stopping drinking because I wasn't sure I really so, had. For somebody who doesn't know, you had a dream that you were, that you had been drinking and you woke up as though it really happened. And, and alcoholics experience that as a drinking dream is in the in, Exactly like that. And I didn't even, hadn't admitted to myself there was something to blow, right? <laughs> right. And right. then so I, so I laid there thinking, oh, well, there's not even any booze in the house. And I'm here in bed that, oh, that was weird. I finally got myself back to sleep. A few weeks later, I had the same dream and then, you know, same reaction. And that next morning, I told my husband about it. And now I've been going to open AA meetings for almost 10 years. And I had never heard of these. And my husband says to me, a lot of us have those dreams. Oh. And I don't want to be us. I, I just want to be a guest. I don't want, I don't want to be us. <laughs> um, but that night was his regular meeting. And like I often did, I went to the meeting and um uh, the speaker, uh, it, it, the for, you know, I noticed when we moved to Washington, the formats are different, but the format mm -hmm. at that meeting was for a speaker to speak for 10 or 15 minutes and then to call on various people in the room. It wasn't a free for all. You can volunteer, which is better. I always like those better, but the speaker was new, didn't know me, called on me. And after having had that conversation with my husband and praying about it a little bit, um, I said for the first time, I'm Mary and I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I felt like 10 or 20 pounds had been lifted off my shoulders. But I was also afraid that these people would think I'd been sitting in as an imposter for two or three years. And I thought, oh, these are, they're not going to speak to me now. And people came up to me and thanked me for my share and said, welcome. And I've had the, And so, so that's what it was like. And that's what happened. <laughs> Where are you in seminary at this point? Uh, 94. It was probably my second semester of seminary. It was a very um, eventful first semester. <laughs> yeah. What was your husband's response? Oh, I guess he is like so supportive. I was like, yay. Good. We'll go to meetings together. We'll go to meetings apart. It's we we've had our issues over the years, as most honest couples do. But he has always been supportive unconditionally loving uh, more than I deserve was totally supportive of whatever I needed to do to work on my recovery. He just has a little more time than I do in the program. But. Okay. So that admission, you admitted, took the first step, you admitted you're an alcoholic. Um, how has that made a difference for you? I mean, what, what difference has that made in your life? Well, it's hard to take steps 
two through 12 without having had done number one thoroughly and completely. But it began, you know what? It began the process of learning to live like a grown up. Mm. You know, part of what I went into, um, what part of what I learned in therapy? Oh, and that's the other thing I told my therapist. Uh, the next time I saw her that, you know, uh, I had these dreams and realized I was an alcoholic and now I'm going to AA meetings for me. And she didn't quite say it, but it was like, well, I've been waiting, (laughs) you know, (laughs) she wasn't one of those therapists that would tell me what to do, but it's like, it took you long enough. (laughs) You're the last person in the room to know, right? (laughs) I finally started to grow up to pay attention to when you know, I'm still selfish. I'm still self-centered, all of those things, but I notice it now. And I know what the antidote to that is. You know, the antidote is reaching out to somebody else. The antidote is uh, prayer. The antidote is choosing the next right thing instead of the easier, softer thing. I hate it. I mean, sometimes I just hate it. But I don't hate it like I hated what other stuff was making me feel inside. I've just learned to grow up. What's been the hardest part of that process, working through the steps growing up? What's been? Feeling my feelings. I drank so I wouldn't feel feelings. And I don't like all my feelings. Especially when you come out of a a household like that. Yeah. The reason anger was the trigger issue for my therapy was my dad was such an angry man. I was never taught how to handle my anger in a healthy way. And so I was in my mid thirties before somebody started teaching me, you know, anger isn't the primary emotion. It comes from something else. So to learn to distinguish sadness and fear and anxiety and, and deal with those before they become anger, the concepts kind of came in therapy but the practical way to do it came in the 12 steps. They're actionable and they, and, they, and they build on each other. And so, you know, I've taken the 12 steps uh, more than a few times and I have a sponsor and he um, is really good at pulling my covers. And I want to make a disclaimer right here. Um, it's not considered good practice for one's sponsor to be of the opposite gender or a gender you might be attracted to in a sexual way, however that works in your life. However, my sponsor is, first of all, a colleague. And that's, you know, it's weird to be an alcoholic pastor. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's got its own weirdness. And the second is, I joke, I'm afraid of his spouse, but no, that's not true. I like his spouse. He likes my spouse and we live two states apart. You know, most of our contact is over the phone. It's all related to recovery. And so we break the one rule of of thumb uh, because we're both people in such strong recovery. And, And I think most of the time I have a pretty good program. You know, we're just not going to do something we want to, we'll have to make amends for later because making amends is a pain in the ass. So anyway, so I make that caveat. If, if somebody listening is a newcomer, unless your opposite sex sponsor is gay and not attracted to you, don't, don't, <laughs> don't do that. So I've got a sponsor. Uh, when I first came to Washington, I kind of stopped going to meetings again because as much as I talk, I'm an introvert. And uh, building relationships in a parish takes an awful lot of emotional energy. And the idea of 
trying to find a new meeting where I was going to start from scratch, but I, I, I couldn't deal. And then they did the meetings wrong. They do the meetings wrong up here. If you're used to how they did them in, and everybody who moves says the same thing about wherever they come from and where they go to, but they don't do them wrong. They read the 12 steps. They read the traditions. They talk about recovery. And, uh, and so I finally found a meeting that I love. I was devastated when uh, COVID meant we couldn't meet. Mm. And then very excited when Zoom made it possible to, and I still don't go to the very limited in-person meetings they're having because this particular group has a lot of newcomers and following rules is not their very best thing. And I'm not going to go where people don't wear masks or wear them under their chin or, you know. Yeah, yeah. Say something about what it's like to be a pastor, uh, an alcoholic clergy. Well, you know, for the first six years in the parish, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody in the parish that I was a recovering alcoholic. I was concerned about how it might affect my ministry and I wasn't clear where it would be helpful. And, and so I prayed for God to just let me know when the right time would be. Uh, there was no like ringing of a bell or anything, but I finally called my bishop and said, I'd like to chat with you. Uh, I said, nothing's really wrong, but we sat, we had coffee um, and I said, and I'm not making a confession. I haven't done anything wrong, but now I feel like I've got some time under my belt and I'm able to be useful and be a resource if you need me. Mm. And so I gave him a shorter version or maybe a longer version of what I just shared. And uh, I, part of me expected him to say, and this is all, you know, the first time you share your stories with somebody who has power over you, I expected him to say, you took your call under false pretenses, mm, you know, because I wasn't in my paperwork. It, my alcoholism never got in my paperwork. My family's alcoholism was in my paperwork, no. but not mine. But I had a, a wonderful uh, teaching parish pastor who I did tell him and I told my internship supervisor it, once they showed me they were trustworthy. But my teaching parish pastor, uh, for those who don't know, is again, it's like limited hours while you're in seminary helping in a church. I said, you know, nobody knows. He says, it's nobody's business unless you drink again. Right. <laughs> it's nobody's business unless you drink again and uh, unless you want it to be their business. So when I talked to the bishop and he did not say, why didn't you tell me this before I submitted your name to this congregation? Instead, he said, are you still going to meetings? And then the bishop that came after him also was very supportive of my being in meetings. And in fact, when I was whining to him one time at a retreat about some way I was feeling, I said, I know that God can restore me to sanity, but I'm not sure God wants to, step two. <laughs> and he said, do you want to be restored? I mean, you know, so I've had all these supporting colleagues and bishops in my life who are quite willing to just yank my covers and not let me wallow in it. So that kind of support helps me do my job. And now I uh, frequently uh, mention my uh, drinking that I used to drink and now I don't. And uh, it gives other people, I think, permission to share their own wrestling with addiction with me. In my office, you'll often see a 12 
step, a 12 by 12, an Al-Anon book, a Serenity Bible. I keep those. And sometimes people comment on them. How are your parishioners around this? Are they okay with it? Are they, how's that, how's that been met by your parishioners? I don't think they really care. I mean, I, you know, I used to think it would like, but I don't think they see me as an alcoholic pastor. They see me as a pastor who loves them, who also doesn't drink. They don't give me wine for Christmas. They bring me cookies instead, which, you know, that's a whole other 12-step group I could go to. (laughs) Apparently, people in other 12-step programs have shopping dreams or gambling dreams or eating dreams. Where do you think the church as a whole is on on the issue of addiction and alcoholism? Uh, Okay, the church as a whole, some of our Anabaptist brothers and sisters, they tend to just deal with it by saying, don't drink. Drinking's a sin. It will lead you to hell. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a rather extreme thing because I don't, the Bible is not anti-alcohol. Alcohol is not a moral issue. And I don't think the church should make alcohol, the substance, a moral issue. It's not. Stewardship of the body is a moral issue. Stewardship of our health and our behavior, those are moral issues. Um, and that, But the mainline churches, especially ones that have deeply rooted traditions in the Midwest, uh, are kind of like, we don't talk about it. We just don't talk about it. Because if we talk about it, then it makes it real. We don't talk about pedophilia. We don't talk about people cheating on their spouses. We don't talk about people who drink too much or abuse people, you know, domestic abuse. If we don't talk about it, it's not happening. My mother-in-law, bless her um, departed soul, would say to me, you don't feel that way. I'd say, I'm angry about this or frustrated. You don't feel that way. Well, hell yeah, I feel that way. Stop trying to tell me how I feel. I was drinking, so I wouldn't feel that way. But I do. I mean, you know, and I think the church... You know, that that um, culture didn't spring from nothing. These are churched people who say we don't talk about it. My experience with mainline church is we don't make the church a safe place for people to admit they need help in their addictions. Mm-hmm. What the church has become is if I can get it together for Sunday morning and hide my addiction for an hour and a half, I can go. I think that's institutional. It's not a culture that can be changed overnight. I think we do it the way Jesus did, a person and a relationship at a time. I tell my bishops now, I'm available as a resource to other female clergy who may be wrestling with addiction. I'm available to come talk to a congregation. I used to say in AA Bay. Now I say in AA we. Anybody who's paying attention will hear that. And if they don't need to hear it, they won't hear it. Um, my biggest conundrum right now is at the level of press, radio, TV, and films, and everybody's online right now. So all my sermons are online. So how do I honor the traditions of a program that has kept people alive for 60 or 70 years and have integrity? I mean, that's so that's a tricky line to walk if a sermon is being broadcast, but even within the context of the parish, I mean, you know, I'm not going to get anybody into recovery, you know, online anyway. It's it's more about building relationship. That's what sponsorship's about, right? That's why we find a home group. I really appreciate your stories. I feel like we could just keep going. You've got a lot to share. Thank you for taking the time to share yourself. I'm, I always marvel uh, at 
how people in recovery are so open with themselves. I remember when I first went to my first 12-step meetings, I was always struck by how these people could just speak from their heart. It's just powerful. Anyway, just thank you for letting me hear your heart and sharing this time with us. My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our Pastor Upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization.